up. We love you so much. And yet at the same time, we feel, Lord, we feel that we are still in the fight and we still struggle with affections for other things, for things of this world. Lord, and we ask that you would help us to murder, murder those sins that would have us love anything other than Christ. Thank you so much that we are one with our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. Well, I love that, that last song. All we need, all we want. And there's no one like him. It's all found in Jesus. And that's exactly what we're, we're going to be learning this morning. Uh, so good morning, everyone. My name is Sergio. I'm one of the elders here at uh, CBC. And it's um, always a privilege and an honor for me to uh, stand before you and open God's word. And we're going to be in Colossians 2 this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Colossians 2. And I have the amazing privilege for uh, being able to preach here for two weeks in a row. So I thought, you know, what, what could we cover in two weeks? And I thought, well, I think Colossians 2 would be great. Union with Christ would be great. So I started studying it, started look, reading up on it, started looking at my Bible about union with Christ. And I quickly found out that we have, there's about of a, like a month's worth of content uh, in just that. So this was like Thursday. So I'm like... Uh, okay, I have two choices. I could kind of cut it in half and maybe come back later or just take a month of sermons and, and essentially fit it into two weeks. So that's what I did. <laughs> We're going to have uh, two weeks of just intensive study on union with, union with Christ. And uh, now, like, why union with Christ? Union with Christ affects everything you do as a believer. It affects what you what you think, it affects what you think on, your mindset, it affects your actions. It is at the very core of who we are. Union with Christ summarizes this multifaceted relationship we have with our Savior. That we get every spiritual blessing from him, every assurance, every hope, every motivation is found in our union with Christ. So it's pretty encompassing. But as encompassing as that truth is, it is also easily forgotten. It is also easily overlooked. It can easily, unfortunately, be replaced. That reminds me of um, a, a saying we have in our household to our, our kids. We tell them that they need to remember that they're in a Rosco. Um, and being in a Rosco, there are certain rules that come with that. So we often tell our kids, uh, a Roscos don't give up. That a Roscos prefer one another. That a Roscos take responsibility now, I have to be careful with this because it could quickly backfire being an Orozco myself. Uh, if I say Orozco's eats what's given to them, and that night I'm not exactly thrilled about what's given on the plate, uh, I might just change that. Like, well, tonight Orozco's will eat most of what's given. And, and uh, I get by like that way. And, and thankfully, haven't, they haven't turned that around on me yet. So I'm, I'm still good. Uh, but I think I would fail as a parent if my kids thought that being a Orozco comes down to keeping these rules. If you keep these rules, you're in Orozco, which is, of course is not true at all. The reason why my kids are Orozcos, um, by the way, my last name is Orozco. Let's <laughs> just clear that up right now. <laughs> What's an Orozco? Um, <laughs> uh, the reason why my kids are in Orozco is because God has placed them in our family. That's why. It's not about how good they keep the rules. It's not about how well they treat each other. Being a Roscoe does inform how they act, 
but it doesn't determine who they are. My kids will always be Orozco's. And I think we could, we could take that same line of thinking and apply it to Christians. And then we could start looking at how well we keep our Christian rules. We could start seeing how well do we attend church? How well are we doing in fighting sin? How much are we reading our Bibles, right? All these things are good. All these things are, are something that we should be pursuing. But they can't define us as followers in Christ. If we, if we start to look at ourselves to, to find us, I think we'll find out well, exactly what the Bible tells us, that, that we fall short of the glory of God. So we can't look at ourselves. What we need to do is stay grounded in who we are. And we need to let that inform us. We need to look outside ourselves and look to who we are in Christ. That we are in Christ, that God has joined us to his son, and that, that is a basic core of who we are. It's not what you think about yourself that defines you. It's not how others evaluate you that defines you. It's not your political party that defines you. It's not your job that defines you. None of that gets close to who you are. If you dig down and peel everything back to who you are just as a person, as a believer in Christ, which is all encompassing of who you are, if you peel everything back, you'll see that you are united in Christ. I like how one writer puts it. He says, the most irreducible reality about you is that you are united with Christ. Peel everything else away, and the solid, immovable truth about you is that you are, is your union with the resurrected Christ. So this morning, we are meditating on that union with Christ. And we're going to look at this multifaceted truth and let that remind us of who we are. That because you are in Christ, you are lacking in nothing. That because you are in Christ, you are secured in him, apart from your works. That everything has been accomplished solely by Christ, and you have confidence to stand before God, and God will, see you proclaim, God will proclaim you as righteous, as forgiven from all your sins. So this morning, we are looking at our union with Christ, and we're going to be anchored in Colossians 2. This will be our passage for this morning. Uh, but I am approaching this a little bit more differently than how I have usually approached sermons. Usually we stay in the passage and that's it. I'm, I'm going to be, we are going to be in Colossians too, but we're going to be going to other passages in the Bible. So we'll be flipping around in our Bibles to see all these multifaceted, uh, this multifaceted truth of union with Christ. And as we do that, uh, my, my hope and my prayer, as, as, as you look at, the, at your union with Christ, is that you'll be able to walk away from here being able to counter any teaching, and really any thought that threatens your confidence in your standing before God. That in your union with your Savior, you will have the ultimate joy that comes from that irreducible reality of who you are. That you belong to Christ. That God has joined you to Christ. And that no sin, no power, no failure can ever take you out of that union. So let's read, let's go to Colossians 2, and we're going to read today verses 9 through 15. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all, the rule, over all rule and authority. And in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, 
in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile towards us. And he has taken it out of the way, having, it nailed, it, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Father, we read this amazing text about who Christ is, about what he has done. And I pray, Father, that you guide us through your Holy Spirit to bring us deeper into your Son. That our union with Christ would just become so real to us that it would influence everything we do and think. So, Father, I pray that you would work. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work through the Scriptures now as we study it. Praise Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there is a, a lot in this passage to unpack here, uh, so much so that um, we're only going to spend today looking at verse 9 and 10. And then next, uh, next week, we'll look at 11 through, through 14. So we're going to kind of split it up a little bit, but it's because there's so much there. And we need to start by understanding why Paul wrote this. Why did he write this letter to the Colossians? Uh, it is good to remember that the Colossians were made up of, uh, the Colossian church made up of Gentiles. There is a, also a strong Jewish presence there. So this church was very familiar with things like circumcision, things like sab- the Sabbath. So they're familiar with that. Uh, but this church was also facing threats from false teachers. That, the, the, that there was an error trying to uh, get into that church, and Paul wanted to address the error. Now, thankfully, the Colossians church had not fallen into error. This is not like a Galatian situation where Paul's writing saying, oh, foolish Galatians. Right? He's not having that tone in this, in this uh, letter. The Colossians were still holding on to the gospel, but Paul knew they needed to go deeper in Christ. So Paul sends them this Christ-exalting letter which expounds on who Christ is and our union with him. Now, what exactly were these false teachers teaching? Uh, it's kind of hard to say. We don't have a whole lot. I mean, you look at verses 16, 18. You go down to verse 23. You kind of get an idea of what they're saying. But here's the gist of it. They're saying, okay, Christ is great, but you need more. You can, you, you could believe in Christ, but Christ alone won't do it. You're going to have to add in worship to angels. You're going to have to add in all these works in order for you to be okay with God, in order for you to be righteous with God. And really, if you just go to our present day, this is what any other religion teaches. That any other religion outside of true Christianity will say, you need something else to get to God. You need to be able to do something to get to God. And Paul, seeing this, concerned about the, the Colossian church, says, no, that is not who Christ is. That is not what we have in Christ. And you can see this concern in verse 8. Look at, read with me in verse 8. Verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, 
uh, deception according to the tradition of man, according to the ele elementary principles of the world. He's saying, watch out for these things. Don't let those things take you captive. Don't be uh, uh, pulled into those things. Those things are according to fallen, to, to fallen sinful principles. Instead, focus on Christ. Right? That's how he ends in verse 8, rather than according to Christ. And I love this because Paul doesn't say rather than according to our system of theology. He doesn't say rather than according to all the philosophy I've taught you. He goes to a person rather than to Christ. And this is where we're going to see our first facet of this multifaceted truth of union with Christ. Our first facet this morning of being united with Christ, that being united with Christ means that you're united to a person. You are united to a person. Yes, doctrine and truth and all that comes from that because those doctrines and truth is consistent with the person that we're united to, right? Because it's to Christ. But we are united to a person. And one of my favorite metaphors of this union comes from Ephesians 5. So flip over to Ephesians 5. Um, if you have a hard time figuring out where Ephesians 5 and the general epistle, really quick. It's not in my notes, it's just quick for you guys. Uh, I always remember uh, General Electric Power Company, right? G-E-P-C, General Electric Power Company. So we're in C, we're going to go back to E. I think the last time I actually taught was in children's ministry, so that explains that. Okay, so we are in Ephesians 5, verse 25. He said, uh, this is Paul writing, he says, Husband, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So when you go to Ephesians 5, you can see that Paul is talking about husbands about husbands loving their wives. I think in a just person-to-person, human-to-human interaction, there, there really isn't anything more intimate, anything more precious, anything more personal than a, a relationship a husband has with his wife. For husbands, that should be the, the greatest relationship you have. I could say just personally that Daniela, my wife, also last name Orozco, Daniela, is my closest friend. We share everything together. We know each other so personally and intimately. Nothing is hidden from us. You can't get more intimate than, uh, I can't get more intimate than what I have with my wife. And this is true throughout our civilization. If you go to husbands and wives, that union, that is supposed to be the closest friendship, or closest friendship, closest relationship that we have. The institution of marriage then shows us something about our union with Christ, because that is what Paul is doing. He's going to marriage. He's going to what, how husbands ought to love their wives, saying this is showing us something about Christ. And so when we look at Ephesians 5, Christ is the center of that. Christ is the model for how husbands are supposed to love their wives. I mean, just, let's just do a quick read of this. Husbands, in verse 25, love your wives just as who? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And look how much it's about Christ. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her, all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be whole, but that she would be holy and blameless. Goes back to husbands. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. And we go back to Christ just as Christ also does the church. At the center of Christ's love for us, as what Paul's written out here, is the gospel. Right? You get the gospel in Paul's teaching about marriage. 
that he gave himself up for us. Where did he do that? He gave himself up for us on the cross. Where it was on the cross that the wrath of God for our sins was poured onto him. He took our sins. And what do we get for that? He gets our sins. What do we get? We get his righteousness. It says in 2 Corinthians that, that this, there's this beautiful exchange that, that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. So that we become righteous, that we could become the righteousness of God in him. So we have this amazing love that Christ has for us, that he would die for us. And, and in 1 John, this tells us what love is. Have you ever wondered, like, what is love, actually? What, how do I look at love, and how do I love somebody? Jesus defines love for that. In 1 John 3, 16, says, we, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. We look how, at how Jesus loves the church. That defines love. And if you're a husband this morning, that defines how you love your wife. Your marriage to your wife ought to magnify the gospel because it ought to show that selfless, sacrificial love that Jesus has for his bride, for the church. And so he loves the church. His love defines how husbands ought to selflessly love their wives. And I just think, imagine if husbands actually did this. If this was just uniform across a whole nation, how transformative that would be. Because people would say, I want that love. And we could say, you could have that love in Jesus because Jesus loves his bride. Like, just, just like that, but better. So Paul makes this super explicit. Go to, down to verse 32. Verse 32 in Ephesians 5 says, This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And you're like, whoa, Paul, I thought we were talking about marriage. He's like, yeah, we are talking about marriage. But marriage is a metaphor. Marriage is showing us what Christ's love, uh, what's Christ's love for the church. And I just want to make a couple connections here, a couple parallelisms. As husbands love their wives, husbands love their wives in a most direct and unique way. Right? We hear our pastor say that he's not going to love other women in the church the way he loves his wife. Right? That's not going to happen. But in the same way, Christ loves the church in a personal and direct way. There's no one else Christ loves more than how he loves the church. A man ought to provide for his wife and selflessly take care of her. And so we see Christ provide salvation for the church and selflessly take care of the church. A husband, as a husband loves his wife as his own body, so also we see Christ love his wife because the church is the body of Christ. And when we see a man commit his, when we see a man commit his life to his wife, that reminds us that Christ is committed to his church for eternity. This is a personal union I'm talking about. That Jesus, that you are united to a person just like how a wife is united to a, her husband. Right? It's not this outside, vague idea of theology and, and abstract thought. We are united to a person. And that person is alive and in us and with us. So let's go back to Colossians. So Paul is hearing of these false teachings. He's hearing the false teachings, and he's telling Colossians, yeah, like, don't do that. Instead, look at the person of Christ. It's not just 
Paul's just, just not expounding on cold doctrine. Like, no, no, you just have to have the doctrine, then you're okay. He's saying you need to have the person. It is the person whom you're united. This person, this, this, this Christ, goes with you wherever you go. He is always with you. He is in you. And he has chosen to personally dwell in you. Because he loves you. So live according to that. Live according to that truth about who you are united to. Now, verse 9 in Colossians, he's going to jump into this glory, glorious teaching about who Christ is. And, and I think if you look at the section we read earlier, the central verb here is really found in verse 10. In him you have been made complete. And everything's centered around that. Why have we made complete? How have we been made complete? Everything's centered around that. And to understand that you are complete in Christ, that part of your union is that you're complete, you must understand the person of Christ. And verse 9 is one of the clearest statements in Scripture about who the person of Christ is. Let's read that. Verse 9, he says, For in him, the same in him that we see in verse 10, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So this brings us to our second facet of our union with Christ. We said that union with Christ is with a person, but union with Christ means that you're, you, that you're united with the God of the universe. In Christ, we are united with the God of the universe. In the person of Christ is fullness of deity. That means that Christ is the same nature as God himself. Let me just clear up some things here. That doesn't mean that Jesus was born man and then God gave him fullness of deity. That's not what Paul, what Paul is saying there. And it doesn't mean that Jesus borrowed deity from God and then gave it back to God and then God gives it to the Holy Spirit. No, that's not how it works either. That wouldn't be fullness of deity. That would be splitting up deity. What we see here is that Jesus is completely God. As God the Father is completely God, as God the Holy Spirit is completely God. Now, this is something Paul has already explained in Colossians. Let's go, let's go back to chapter, chapter 1 really quick. Chapter 1, verse 15, Paul starts, he, he is the image, start speaking about Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominion, dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now you read that and say, what is that? If, if you've read that just apart from everything else, what does that sound like Paul is describing? That's not like Paul is describing God, who created all things. And in fact, that's why he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. I, I like how Hebrews 1.3 puts it. Hebrews 1.3 says that he is a radiance of his glory, that he is the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. So this is what Paul's saying in Colossians. This is what makes Jesus so great, is that Jesus is not just this, this man that had great teaching. Jesus is man and God. I mean, look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Now, compare verse 19 in chapter 1 to what we read in, in verse 9. So chapter 1, verse 19 says, full, God's, you know, we have the, the fullness to dwell in him. And in chapter, in chapter 2, verse 9, it says, For in him all the fullness of deity 
and he adds here in verse 9, dwells in bodily form. So he adds something here. Paul's saying, yes, Christ is fully God, but that fully God is dwelling in a man. That God is God, he's very God of very God, but he's also fully man. He's not in the form of man. It's not that he appeared to be man. It's that he is one, he is man, he is flesh. In fact, in the, in the Greek, in verse uh, 9 here, it says, fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That bodily form is just one word, and it's just bodily. I think the ESV translates it uh, as just bodily, and I think that's, that's accurate. So Paul is speaking as Christ as a human. Now, this is so important for our union with Christ. Um, you have to understand that, that Christ is fully God, that he is fully man, and that makes him the perfect bridge for sinful man to get to a holy God. Right? For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. It is the man, Christ Jesus. Now, I want to show you this in the gospel. I want to show you how this is directly related to our union with him. So let's go to John 14. John 14 uh, has a, a great, uh, illustrates this in a great way. Uh, so John 14, you have, uh, in verse 8, Philip. Philip is asking Jesus, requesting of Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that it is enough for us. Okay. Show us the Father, and it is enough for us. So, Jesus responds to him and says, I have... Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. So you read that, and be like, okay, there's, there's a oneness there. Right? God with God, the, or Jesus with God the Father. They, they are one. Jesus had just said this in, in John 14, 6. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you want to get to God, if you want to get to the, the God of the universe, you need to go through Jesus. Because he is one with the Father, and the Father is one with him. Now, I'm almost there. How does that imply us to the union with Christ? Okay, now go down to verse 16. In this chapter, same chapter, chapter 14 in John, verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever, that is the spirit of the truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, because I live and you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Being united with Christ, because Christ is fully God, joins us to God the Father. And it joins us to God the Holy Spirit. It joins us to the complete Godhead. That God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we are one with them. And each have different roles. We unite to them, but each have different roles. But, but they're all related to Christ. So we could, for example, we could approach God the Father and call him Abba, or call him Daddy, because we are in Christ. 
We become the temple of the Holy Spirit, and, and the Holy Spirit is constantly working in us because we are in Christ. And because of those things, we could say that Christ is always with us, that Christ will never depart from us even to the end of the age. So let's go back to Colossians 2. If you want to understand your union with Christ, you need to see that your union with Christ is with a person and that your union with Christ is with the God of the universe. Which leads to verse 10 in chapter 2. Verse 10, he says, And in him you have been made complete. And so we see our third facet of our union with Christ. Our third facet with our union with Christ is that we are complete in our union with him. Now, if you look at verse 10, the word for complete there actually goes back to fullness of deity. It has the same word. And there might be a little note in your Bible there about um, when it says you have been made complete. Uh, there's a little note that says full. So Paul is using the same word, fullness of deity, in verse 9, referring to Christ. And then we are made complete in him, right? We are made full in him. And I think Paul, Paul is doing that just to convey that there is nothing outside of Christ we need. In fact, Paul writes this uh, in what's called the perfect tense, showing that there is a past action that has continuing consequences. That Jesus accomplished this completeness, this fullness, and we are currently full. It is done. Nothing else needs to be happened for us to be full in Christ. Now, I think he's describing Union with Christ in a particular way, like if you put it in the context, to counter the false teachers. So false teachers, remember, they were saying, yeah, that's great that you have God, but you can't, or that you have Christ, but you can't fully experience God unless you do this, unless you worship angels, unless you partake in these rituals, right? Unless you do some kind of work, you won't be fully saved or you won't reach this new level of spirituality. And that reminds me of a, the, the great reformer Martin Luther, uh, I think his life bears this out to an extreme. Uh, many of you know the story of Martin Luther that um, maybe you don't. That he was he got uh, he was in a thunderstorm, and in the thunderstorm uh, it was a very sudden thunderstorm. He thought he was going to die, and so fearing being judged by God because of his sin, he he gives a quick prayer, and he's Catholic, and so he didn't he didn't pray to God. He prayed to Saint Anne. And when he prayed to St. Anne, he said, St. Anne, if you save me from this terrible storm, I will become a monk. I will join the monastery. And so he survived the storm. And so he's like, okay, then I have to be good with my promise to St. Anne. I'm going to become a monk. Now, when he becomes a monk, he starts years filled with fasting and prayer, which is not a bad thing, and self-mortification, which is a bad thing. But he's doing all this work for years and years and years, trying to say, trying to show to God that he is good enough, that he could become righteous enough before God. And as he spent those years and years there, the dread of his sin, the dread of judgment didn't go away. It did not lessen. With more work, more effort he put into it, he just found himself even more in despair. It wasn't until he studied the book of Romans he looked at justification, that we can be righteous before God, we can be called righteous before God, that that only comes through faith in Christ. It is a single act of God, not a result of any of our works. 
So Luther found, found salvation from sin, found that, that burden of ju pending judgment, judgment from God. He got released from that when he looked outside of himself. It wasn't so much about what he did or what he does. It's about what Christ did. It's about the righteousness of Christ. And that's, that's what it means to be complete in Christ. To be complete in Christ means that you know you can't add anything to Christ. That Christ is full. That he did everything you need for salvation. And that we are full in Christ. He has done all the work. Now, maybe you're, you're in a similar place as where Luther was that you want to earn your way to before God. And I, I hear it all the time. You talk to people who are outside the church and sometimes in the church and say, well, I'm hoping that maybe I'll be good enough so that when I die, God will let me in. He'll kind of weigh the good and the bad and be like, okay, you have more good and so you can come to heaven. My friend, if this is you this morning, you need to hear this message. The Bible says that your works and my works are as filthy rags to him, that all our works do is condemn us and show us that we have been disobedient to God. But this is where union with Christ is so sweet. Christ has done all the work. Christ has died on the cross so that you could be complete in Christ. You don't need to add anything there. You are fully forgiven in Christ, and you are fully righteous in Christ. And the Bible says that all you have to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and Savior and you're saved. That you bow your knee to him and fully place your trust in Christ. And that's it. Just like that, you are complete in Christ. Now, if you are a Christian today, if you believe in that and you trust in that, maybe you're like the Colossians. Maybe you're, you're tempted to think that there needs to be more. And I think that temptation comes in the in, in the that when you have sinned, you feel like you have to make up for something. You have to do something to make up for it. Yes, there's confession, and, and you confess your sin to God, and you know that he's going to forgive you, and he, 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 he is righteous to do that. But that you still feel like, I have to do something. And I, I, I hear from believers saying that, you know, I, I, just, I just need to read my Bible more. I just, I just, I'm just going to go to church more. It's going to be extra nice now. I think by the heart of this, at the heart of this, is an unbelief that Jesus is enough. That what Jesus is offering is too good that we have to add something to it. But that's not what unity with Christ means. That's not what it means to be complete in Christ. If you're complete in him, it is done. He has done all the work. You're complete already. Now, what that means is yet you have to give up hope on saving yourself. That has to be completely left. And you have to cling to Christ. Your only hope has to be in Christ. Even in the immediate aftermath of sin, Christ has already made you complete. And that's what you hang on to. So we've seen this morning that we are united with a person in Christ, that in Christ we're united to God, the God of the universe, that we are complete in Christ. And a fourth facet is going to take us a little, it's going to take us out of Colossians, but it's related, that we are, there's another way we are full in Christ. Now Paul in Colossians 2 is speaking about fullness of Christ in the sense of, of salvation, that there's nothing else to do to be, to be saved. We are fully saved in Christ. 
But I want to show you another use of this word. Let's go to uh, uh, John 15. In John 15, this is another great passage for union with Christ. This is very familiar um, vines and branches, that Christ is the vine and we are the branches and we are to abide in him. All right, it's, a, it's a great metaphor for union with Christ. And I want to show you something in this. Go down to verse 11. Verse 11, Jesus is talking about being ab- abiding in him, being uh, united with Christ in this way. And in verse 11, he says, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. That is the same word as what we saw in Colossians, full, complete. That he's speaking about joy here. And so our fourth facet of our union with Christ is that union with Christ brings us fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. We have fullness of joy. So it's not just that we, we are able to be fully saved and, and, and union with Christ is our ticket to heaven that, okay, Christ saved me, I'm good, I'm saved, I'm done. No. Union with Christ goes beyond being fully saved. There's grace upon grace upon grace here and now you can have, you can have fullness of joy in your life. because it is his joy that is in us. His joy that is in us. Now what Jesus is not saying here is that he's not saying he doesn't want you just to be happy. That's not what he's, he wants you to do. He's not saying that I, I want you to go find your own happiness, find your own life and be happy in what you do. Jesus wants so much more for you than that. Jesus says, if you abide in me, you will have my joy. The same joy I experience, you will experience. And so my question, when I read that, I was like, okay, what, what joy does Christ experience? And then we can get that in verse, if you look at verse 9 and 10. Verse 9 and 10, she says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So there is this connection that Jesus is making with obedience, with following commandments. But Jesus, the Father doesn't love Jesus just because Jesus keeps, keeps up his commandments. That's not what Jesus is saying there. Jesus is saying, my, my Father loves me, and out of my love for my Father, I want to obey. And from that comes this joy. And from Christ, who is infinitely obedient, infinitely connected, and you God the Father, Christ has an infinite amount of joy. So that joy comes from the love of the Father, the love that Christ knows the Father has for him. And so being in Christ means that you can experience this fullness of joy. It's not like Martin Luther, where Martin Luther was so desperate to have some kind of uh, relief from that burden of sin that he was doing thing after thing after thing as a monk. No, it's not like that. Christ means you can experience the joy that comes from the Father's unwavering love for you. There is no doubt if you're in Christ as to how God feels about you, how God views you. I mean, he loved you that he sent his only begotten son to die for you. There is sweet, sweet assurance there, and from that assurance comes immense joy. I love a Psalm 4016. Psalm 4016 says, Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. 
Let those who love your salvation say continually, the Lord is magnified. You know, we, we see how God saved us. And when we see how God saved us, that causes us to rejoice. And that causes us to be glad in him. That fullness of joy in Christ, this is what our union brings. And, it, and it's a good reminder for us this morning. Uh, you know, we often talk about the sufficiency of Christ, right? The sufficiency of Christ to, to bring us into salvation, to, take us, to bring us to heaven. But there's also a sufficiency of Christ in our joy. And I think we could often start to pursue other things. And this gets into a little bit of Colossians 3 with keeping a, a, a heavenly mindset. But we often start to pursue other things. We might start to pursue a different job just because we want fulfillment. Or we start to pursue a relationship because we want, want to feel joy. Or we start even to do things in church. Maybe if, we, if I serve more, I could feel more fulfilled. Or maybe if I worship differently, I could feel God's presence more. Let me encourage you, don't make those things idols. Instead, you go to Christ. Enjoy the beautiful, intimate union you have with Christ. Enjoy his completed work that he has already accomplished on your behalf. And enjoy the fullness of joy that you have in him. So, we see that you're united personally with Christ, we're united with the God of the universe. We are complete in our unity with him. And, and our unity brings fullness of joy. Now let's go back to Colossians 2. I want to wrap up verse 10 here by looking at the end of verse 10 where Paul writes that Christ is ahead over all rule and authority. Now, I immediately had a question when I read this. Like, so I'm like, okay, Paul, you told me Christ is God himself, right? And being God himself, doesn't that by default make him greater than the thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities? Right? Doesn't that make, automatically make him greater? So why do you have this here? And I think he put this here for two reasons. One is to directly counter the false teaching. The, the false teaching that the Colossians were hearing was that they need to worship angels. And so Paul's like, no, God is the head over all rule and authority. In fact, I love how Hebrews 1 says, the writer of Hebrews 1 says it in a kind of a rhetorical question. He says, to which of the angels has God said, you are my son? Or to which of the angels did God say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Well, no, none of the angels. He said none of the angels, God, told, he didn't, uh, God did not tell any of the angels that. Which brings us to our, our last fa- uh, facet of our union with Christ. I think the reason why Paul puts that here in and why he says that Christ is the head of over all rule and authority, even though he has already said that, God is, that Christ is fully God. I think the reason why is because he wants to let his readers know that there is victory in Christ. That in, union, in the union of our, our, with Christ, we have victory. Now, it's not, here's the differentiate uh, how we need to parse this. It's not that just God is greater in power and eminence over all these things, uh, over all these creatures, over all these powers. It's that God, uh, that Jesus has authority over them. That's what it means that he is head. He has authority over them. And this is important for us to realize because whether you, you realize it or not, there are spiritual battles going on in the life of a believer. Satan is constant attack. First Peter tells us that he was prowling around like a roaring lion, lion seeking to, for whom he may devour. But when we read that 
Jesus is head over all rule and authority. When we read that, we say, that means he is over Satan. That means he is over the demons. That means he's, that Jesus is over any other power. Christ has authority over them. I think Ephesians 2 kind of lays this out really well. In Ephesians 2, it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And to be dead in our trespasses and sins, uh, in Ephesians 2, 2, says that we are subject to fall to Satan's schemes and plans. We were enslaved to sin and therefore in Satan's rule and control. That's that's who we are in Christ. But what did Christ do? Look at at just a little bit later in verse 14 in Colossians. Uh, verse 13 says, when you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh, that's where we were, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all your transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile towards us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And here's one, verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them. When did Christ do that? When was that public display that he is head over all authority and rule? When it was at the cross, where he took our sins and we were forgiven. But more publicly, it was when he rose. On the third day, he rose again. His resurrection proved that he defeated death. His resurrection proved that he has, he has defeated the power of sin and thereby stripped Satan of his power. For believers. I love how Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 2.14. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. I have this picture of, of like these, um, I remember different World War II movies, but also documentaries of like these World War II parades. Whereas in World War II parades, you see all these troops marching boldly and victoriously down these, these streets. And when you see them walking down that way, they just got out of war, and as they're marching, there is no concern whatsoever that the enemy is around the corner. There's no concern that the enemy is planning a sudden ambush on them because they know they're gone. They know that the the enemy has been defeated, and they're just walking down the streets behind their captains, behind their military leaders in victory. And I like to think that's us that we are those, right now, we are those victorious troops. That we are walking behind our great Savior. And so our union with Christ gives us victory over the power of sin in our lives. It gives us victory over the schemes of Satan. And and, and maybe this past week for you was, was marked by losing battles of sin. Maybe you felt this past week that the, the, the evil powers of the world are winning the day. And I just ask you to be encouraged, my dear brother and sister. You are united at the most fundamental level to the victorious king. You're united to the reigning savior who has authority over all those things. Martin Luther's hymn, Mighty Fortress is Our God, I think it's really appropriate here. One of the verses is, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. My brothers and sisters, in getting over habitual sin, there is hope 
and enduring those fiery darts thrown at you by the, the enemy. And there is hope for getting through the fiery furnace that is your current trials, being unscathed. And the reason why you have that hope is because you are united with Christ. You are united to the Son of God. You are united to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what our union with Christ is. That it is a personal union with God, that we are united, that we are united to the God of the universe, that we have full salvation, complete salvation, we have complete joy, we have complete victory in our union with Christ. I'm just going to get really practical here. And next week, I, I plan to get a little bit more practical. Where does this truth of our union with life comes up? Where does it come up in our lives? Well, union with Christ comes up with every decision you make, with every impulse you feel, with every emotion, with every evaluation, especially every evaluation of yourself. Your union with Christ is fundamental with who you are, which means that you don't look to yourself to define yourself. You look to Christ. Who are you in Christ? That's the question. Who are you in Christ? Well, if you're united with Christ, that means in Christ you are forgiven. In Christ you are free. In Christ you are loved. In Christ you are victorious. And I could go on and on and on. This is a grace upon grace upon grace. If you're a believer here today, I want you to cling to this truth. Remind yourself of that reality daily, that it is who you are and that we are complete in Christ. Jesus is, is our great shepherd, and in him we shall not want. There will never be anything lacking because he gives us complete victory, complete salvation, complete joy. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this amazing truth for this amazing reality of who we are, Lord. And, and we know that this is not done by our own works. We know this is not done by something we have accomplished. This is all done through the work of your Son. Lord, I pray that these truths would impact us as we go out from here today, Lord. I pray that you would remind us daily. And I pray, Lord, that that union with Christ would just become so much more real to us, that the reality of the union in Christ would match with what we think of the union with Christ. So thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for saving us and throwing us grace upon grace upon grace. We praise you, our God in heaven. We praise you, in his name. Amen. Please stand with us if you would.